Today we're diving into a recent episode from the SaaS for Developers podcast, which is a new podcast from Gwen Shapira. Um, I didn't know of Gwen before. I think I heard of her, uh, but she's very senior at Confluent and recently spun out to work on a control plane startup called Denial. I've been very excited about uh, Denial, but I think just SaaS for Developers is just exploring just SaaS building in general. And he ha she had uh, Sam Ramji on, who is Chief Strategy Officer of Datastax. And I kind of knew Sam as well. He's kind of been in my circles. Uh, but he is also running a podcast, which I am going to feature in a future episode uh, called Open Source Data. Um, but I think I didn't really know his background at Microsoft. And it was pretty enlightening. So have a listen. Well, I'll just give you like a really short, odd duck tour. Um, right. I've always been curious about thinking. Um, so I ended up in cognitive science. So I studied artificial intelligence and neurobiology and a little bit of cognitive psychology and a little bit of philosophy of mind. And they put it together and called it a, a bachelor of science. I went to UC San Diego uh, and that was awesome. I got really curious about how do we help people think more? So I went into educational software. So I did, you know, client side programming, Windows, Macintosh. I worked at Broderbund. Um, probably the only thing that people would have heard of was the game Myst. I got to work on the sequel to Myst called Riven. Uh, so I was one of the five programmers on that. I believe I played that. <laughs> well, now it's on the iPhone, right? You can get it anywhere. All these old games are kind of, you know, all good again. And that began a journey into distributed computing because I was doing this client-side stuff. But the client-side computers that we were, you know, and the software that we were writing in 1995 wasn't particularly smart. So I ended up at a range of different companies from Fair Isaac doing decision scoring software, distributed systems there to... Ultimately, Ophoto, where I was director of engineering. And for those people who don't know Ophoto, uh, in 2001, it was a lot like Instagram, but, you know, 10 years earlier and worth $950 million less. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we sold it to Kodak, I think, in May of 2001 for like $60 million, which is about what the funding was. So that was the dot-com bust. And then, like, we're all like, all right, what do we do next? And I ended up at BEA Systems doing my first non engineering job. And this is kind of the, the first big um, leap I took because all through my engineering career was like, how do I write code? How do I design the code? How do I write bug-free code? How do I work with other people in the team so that we can build these pieces better, faster together? Right? And so I started doing project leadership. And then I was like, you know, there's a lot of really bad managers in the world. And I was young enough to be cocky enough to think I could be a good manager. So I was like, okay, how do you do this? And so I applied this sort of coding mindset to how do I get really good at management? I got into lean thinking by Womack and Jones and a bunch of those kinds of, you know, techniques and systems in the late nineties and brought them into engineering management was awesome. But ultimately why was the company that we did such great work at, at Ophoto, why was it sold for $60 million and not 400 million? I realized I just don't even know if the people in marketing and business and strategy know what they're doing. And how would I know if they knew what they were doing? I could spend the rest of my life here in the engine room and I could end up like who knows where. So I had to go and ask the question. I was really curious. Instead of what we do in engineering, which is how will we build it? I was like, I need to go figure out how do you ask the questions of what should we build and why should we build it? And so that began kind of the, the next journey through BDA. How do you get anyone to even use it? Crazy, like, right? Hard questions. <laughs> these, are, these are really, really hard problems, right? And yeah, and that, that's, you know, now they call that product management, I guess. But um, I got to work on distributed systems at BEA with big customers and like starting to see these big enterprise architectures, adventure-driven computing, you know, 
message-oring middleware. Yeah. Uh, I got that to be part of the ex big commercial ones, right? Yeah, or WebLogic integration was the project yeah. that, we, that we built. Um, it grew really fast. It was pretty popular, but I think it was really the fact that we were bold and we believed in XML. So we had this amazing chief technology officer named Adam Bosworth. And in 2002, he had this point of view that all, all inter-application communication was going to happen in XML. And that was crazy talk at the time, but he was 100% right. But if you, if you wind that forward, you're like, well, why XML? Well, well it's, it's verbose. It's human readable. You can effectively stop and debug it. Unlike the, all the binary objects that we used to marshal over the wire and be like, okay, now I have to write an unmarshaler. And every single program you wrote, you had to write your own bugger, you know, debugging uh, and observability system. Once you had XML, you can have a common set of tools. XML did not stick, but the idea is that human readable is better for developer productivity. Yes. Not, and if you can just get the machines to do it fast enough, then you have a win-win. That exactly. absolutely stuck. Like I don't think anyone is going back to binary making up their own binary protocols. And even if you do do a binary protocol, you're using Protobuf or gRPC, right? Yes. You're using some kind of standardized way that you can generate tools against. Yes. But really, we were just in this moment where we were bringing XML to message-oriented middleware, and we ended up creating the enterprise service bus market. And so that was just markets generally want to happen or don't want to happen. If the market doesn't want to happen, no amount of cleverness and pushing will make it open up. But if it does want to happen, it will pull a product and it will create a business if you just are humble enough to get out of the way and not think it's about you, right? The world is trying to pull these things forward. So that was pretty That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I got to go to uh, Microsoft after that. I worked in the venture capital group briefly, but then they, they asked me to take accountability for startup adoption of Microsoft tools for applications, uh, for application development and security. And I just couldn't, I couldn't avoid observing all of the open source that was getting picked up, right? It wasn't classical competitors that Microsoft understood well. It was this invisible thing. And then I went to this SaaS conference in 2005. It was the first term, first time I ever heard anybody call it SaaS. It was, I want to say, March or April. And no people use the term. Yeah, it was, it was like March or, March or April in uh, 2005. It was called the, the SaaS conference. And we, you know, amazing people there. Like, you may remember, like, uh, Stefan Schambach from Demandware. I mean, we're talking really, really early, uh, you know, kinds of folks and eight hours of the conference. I'm like, I'm just eating it up. This is like magic. It makes sense to me based on the sort of photography as a service that I helped build at Ophoto. And like, I could see how this applies to all these applications. But in the eight hours, they used Microsoft terms twice for about eight seconds. It was all Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP, Java, when they talked about anything. Python was nothing other than Absolutely. So there was only twice that somebody said, oh, and we run this on Microsoft SQL Server. We really like it. So it was said twice. So that was two copies of about four seconds. I came back and I said, you know what? You've asked me to look at application development and security. We're doing okay. But where we have a problem is SaaS. These people can't license your software. They don't know how much of it they're going to need. They don't want to talk to a salesperson. Their company's probably going to fail anyway. So you have to get into this permissionless, right? You have to give them this permissionless environment where they don't need to ask for permission. So the first step, Microsoft, is you got to change your licensing and make it free for all these people. You can protect it. You can do term limited. I worked on that program. It was called BizSpark. I think it ended up being the most popular um, uh, program for startups that Microsoft ever did. But it was only because we were copying some of the core friction-reducing ideas embedded in open source. 
Second thing I said is you got to make all of your stuff work with any open source thing that anybody wants, because that's your opportunity is to be better together. You can't keep fencing them out. The math is not on your side. So, you know, first they ignored me, then they laughed at me, <laughs> then they fought me. Uh, and then I got asked to be the head of strategy for open source in Redmond. And that's where I got to work with Bill Hilf who's amazing. He's now the, the CEO of um, Vulcan, uh, which is a big uh, philanthropic uh, organization. It's Paul Allen's $13 billion endowment. Mm -hmm. And then I got to work with Bill Gates, uh, which is Bill Health had broken the ground coming from Red Hat, uh, no, from IBM actually, where he was the Linux expert. He was hired across to Microsoft to be the Linux expert. And then I got to work for him uh, for a few years and, and kind of you know follow in his footsteps. But because he'd kind of cut the first path, he made a lot of room for me to be bolder. And he, he, this is guidance I'd offer to anybody who's a manager, an aspiring manager. He said, he said, Sam, your job is to change things here. Sometimes that will mean breaking things. So I want to let you know, if I don't hear a complaint about you and what you're doing from someone in PR or engineering or product or marketing, at least every week, then you're not doing your job. This is such an empowering thing to say to someone. Amazing, right? And he knew my heart was in the right place, and we met weekly. And I, you know, I'm 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 a, I'm a detail-oriented person, right? I'm an engineer who does business, right? So I, I bring documentation and all the, you know, all the things that you'd need. But knowing that he was expecting me to cause trouble, <laughs> productive trouble, that gave me all the room I needed to uh, really change my life, right? Just step up to to a level that I'd never imagined before. I completely agree and it's like a lot of managers say i got your back and then you have to try a bit and see do they really have your back or not yeah but uh, the good ones i always do so it's not a problem but um, saying the opposite i expect you to cause trouble it's not even a question of whether or not i got your back this is take it for granted i need you to go and steer things up because Otherwise, we cannot make progress is really amazing. It's extraordinary, right? I mean, it makes you think about metrics and our communication of metrics. Like, what is it the outcome that you want? What are you measuring and how are you communicating your measurement yeah. right, with the people doing work? And all of that was densely compacted in that one poetic right, expression that he offered. I've for, wow. for many years Just since, insane. so clearly it's a big deal. <laughs> Insanely great. So, you know, we got um, Linux interoperability. I got to work with folks like Miguel de Acaza and Nat Friedman back then because we had a big deal with Novell to do interoperability between Linux and Windows. Worked with folks like uh, Jeremy Allison from the Samba project and just kept looking for every single thing. Like I was not going to sleep until all of LAMP and all of the most popular packages ran on top of or next to Windows. And if we could do that, then we'd probably gotten the company on a good path. What I didn't expect to be able to do was to get Microsoft to commit code to Linux under the GPL. Which is so, yeah, I think I think it was like release 2.6.28 or 30 that Microsoft was the number one contributor because we brought in these drivers in the Linux kernel driver project. And that was the brainchild of an engineer, Hank Jansen, who had previously worked at Bell Labs, a super smart guy who'd worked on um, uh, uh, System 5, uh, Unix, like R4, he wrote the multi-threading code and, and he was just like a passionate open source Linux person. So he didn't even think he'd ever work for Microsoft. And it wasn't until he and I got to talk that he came in. And after doing great work for a couple of years, he, he had built the credibility to say, I think we need to do this. Here's these things that we've done around libvert and hyper V 
and we can make Linux think it's running on Linux when it's running on Windows, and we can make Windows think it's running on Windows when it's running on Linux, and this is kind of magic. That technology ended up being the heart of what they built in Windows Azure, and it's why right, the echo of that code is why Azure runs uh, Linux as it does. But his push to put it under the GPL was exactly what we needed to reform Microsoft's approach to licensing and software engineers and whether or not they could look at open source code. So that was uh, that was the, the last meeting I actually got to have with Bill Gates was um, end of June 2008, just before he retired uh, back then. And he was helping right, lead us through this reforming process because he knew the power of open source. They didn't let him do much about it. So he very, very thoughtfully used Bill Hilf's team and my team to change the company. And so we were able to change those rules. And now you look at where Microsoft is today. Many, many people have done a ton of work uh, since then, right? And it's, it's bigger than anything we ever could have made. But I know the infrastructural moves that we had to do and what people believe to be true, how they measured success, how this connected with what developers valued, and the sticky part, how to deal with the licensing and the intellectual property and to not get Microsoft into trouble and to be a good citizen. So interesting times. And it sounds like you really managed to nail, like there was a bottom-up push to change things about Microsoft. There was also a top-down push. And you managed yep. to kind of align the forces to... Yeah make a difference because a lot of times if it's only button up people just try for a while it's going nowhere you know gets frustrated and same thing if it's only top down like an executive can push and push but eventually like if you need to see that people rise up to the occasion so yeah it's really nice that you managed to create this uh, alignment it was amazing I, as, as you say i was not the first bottom-up person to care about it and think it was a good idea but I was the first person to be able to get the top-down alignment. And I had this great sponsorship, obviously, from Bill Hilf uh, and from Bill Gates and from Ray Ozzie, but also by um, an amazing executive uh, at the company, Chris Capicella, right, who really created space and said, hey, this interoperability stuff that you're working on, Sam, like, this seems powerful. You should drive it. You should declare it, like, make it happen. Such a brief interaction again, right? This is kind of the power of mentoring and executive leadership. He didn't tell me a lot of stuff, but he said it with his whole body, and I believe that I could do it. And so the team came together and we did it, right? So it, it was that connection between top top down and bottom up to move the company's metrics, change you know how we scored things, and that enabled us to change the behavior of 55,000 people in the field. Crazy. Crazy, right? I really enjoyed that bit from Bill Gates about how he expects his executive to cause trouble. And I think that's something I wish I heard more from people that, and it makes me, it makes a lot of sense. If you are there just to rubber stamp everything, then you're not really pulling your weights. Like you should um, have a strong vision for where things should go and try to drive people towards that. And obviously to get the bottom up and top down harmony on that as well. Uh, I think part of that is honestly due to timing. So sometimes you just get lucky when the vibe is right, <laughs> people come along with you. And when the vibe is off, you are seen as a failure. But that's how these things roll.